0: Welcome to the Bova UK podcast, where we will be discussing diseases from diagnosis through to management. These podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses. If you're listening as a pet owner, then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal, then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon. Today, I've got Dr. Darren Kelly. Darren has a strong interest in internal medicine, neurology, and emergency critical care. Darren has completed his internal medicine residency in 2019 and currently works as an internal medicine specialist in a private referral center. With Darren today, we've got Dr. Jenny Hell. Jenny obtained her RCBS certificate in small animal medicine in 2008 and is a diplomat at the European College of Veterinary Internal Medicine since September 2012. In 2010, Jenny accepted a position as oncology clinician at University of Glasgow Small Animal Hospital, and in 2016, she was promoted to senior clinician in oncology. Jenny currently works as a senior oncology clinician in a private referral hospital. She is interested in all aspects of oncology, but particularly enjoys hematology and promoting good quality of life. Today, Darren's going to be interviewing Jenny and they're going to be discussing long And how useful is it as part of your oncology arsenal? Let's find out.
1: So, uh, hi Jenny. Uh, Nice to speak to you this evening, as always. Um, Looking forward to having a chat tonight with you about, um, Lamustine and, and getting your thoughts as an oncology clinician about, about how you, you use Lamostine in, in practice. I think it's definitely a drug that I'm pretty fond of using. And I think it's probably a drug that there are, there is potential for it to be used in, in first opinion practice to treat certain conditions. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts on it. Shall we should we just start by I guess if you want to tell us what lomustine is and and how it works?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I, I agree with you. Lomustine is a fantastic addition to the therapy kind of arsenal of drugs that we use. Lomustine is therefore a cytotoxic chemotherapy agent. It's an oral cytotoxic chemotherapy agent, which makes it particularly useful for a certain set of patients, of course. And it's classified as an alkylating agent. My understanding, and I'm a practicing vet and not a pharmacologist, is that it's the mechanism of action of lomestine is not completely understood, but it, it, in a nutshell, it is is an alkylating agent which inhibits DNA and RNA and synthesis, so it's cytotoxic at that level. And it's thought to be non-cell cycle specific as well, but I don't want to really go into any detail beyond that. I think for everyone listening to know that it's an oral cytotoxic drug, and I don't think you need any more detail specifically than that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was would be um as much as I would know that it's delayed and nothing after that really, um. So which which types of cancer do you, you know, will you consider reaching for for lomustine? What types of cases yeah. will you consider it in?
2: Really good question, and I was thinking about that because I knew I was going to be chatting to you tonight. And there's a wide range of cancers that I use lomustine in, particularly lymphoma. We've actually started to modify our protocols as oncologists when we look at B-cell and T-cell lymphomas, so our typical multicentric lymphomas in dogs. There's a lot more immunophenotyping happening now. I'm sure people are utilising that more mm. with the techniques we have to look at for immunophenotyping. And certainly I will use lomustine in our T-cell lymphomas specifically with modifying the CHOP protocol to include lomustine. I'll also use lomestine as my first line for the specific type of lymphoma, which would be T-cell epitheliotropic lymphoma. So I will use lomestine in Mm -hmm. that setting as well. I tend to use it as my first line there. It may not be every oncologist's first line, but I guess we'll go on to later its advantages. And it's a good drug in that it's not given too frequently and it's oral. So for those patients, I think it works really well. So that would be within a protocol for T-cell multicentrics. It would be for our T-cell um, specific epithelial lymphomas. And then I'll also use lomustine for hysticidic sarcomas, also some of our mast cell tumours as well. And sometimes it's used for CNS tumours, but I haven't used it personally in that setting for quite a while since we've had radiotherapy. So since we've got radiotherapy available to us much more in the UK, I'm not using lomustine as much in that setting. And I was looking in the literature, people use lomustine for transmissible venereal tumours as well, which I haven't seen many of, but we yeah. are seeing a few more in the UK. So I, I guess the take home from when it can be used and when I use it is actually many situations that we are using lomustine for. And actually, the other okay. big one I've not said for lymphoma is rescue protocols for lymphoma. So people will be familiar with when lymphoma uh-huh. patients fail their first line chemotherapy, then then we'll often go in with what we call rescue protocols and lomustine forms a cornerstone of many of those protocols. Lots mm. and lots of uses to, to think about. And I've actually just started to explore using Lomestine in one of our feline rescue protocols as well. So a protocol that was written up by the University of Liverpool includes Lomestine alongside mesotrexate and also citerabin. And and that's a drug protocol that I've been using.
1: Okay, nice. So I guess if we'd follow in in particular, I guess that's probably what we as referrals and GP vets will see more than anything else. Would it be a fair state? We probably should be immunophenotype every case where possible so that we can tailor the protocol if, if we have a T versus a B cell.
2: I do think so, yes. I do. As you said there in your statement, wherever possible, there will be certainly cases where there's cost reasoning not to do it. There'll be cases where the owners are not willing to go for any treatment after diagnosis, particularly perhaps in a very, very sick, critically ill patient at diagnosis, owners may be thinking mm-hmm. of um options. But in the vast majority of of lymphomas that we see, I think that we should be immunophenotyping. I think you're clear.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I, I find when it comes to lymphoma cases, obviously, if we can, well, a multi-drug protocol, whether it's a CHOP for a or a lot incorporating L-mustine for a T-cell, I think that's great, but I'm finding a lot more owners or a reasonable number, let's say, are keen to go down a single-Aid route. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, or if you normally offer owner single agent protocols or
2: yeah I think that's a really good point as well so certainly we do I think you'll do this as well when you diagnose a patient with lymphoma you sit down you have a chat and there's lots to discuss and there's the all the elements of what the textbooks would tell us are right to do for our patients I think um, we all know that we'll look at the papers and the literature around that but then there's a conversation about what's right for those owners and their pets and that might be financial considerations it might be logistical considerations i've had patients in the highlands and islands of scotland into our clinics so certainly managing right. a patient from a remote scottish island it's not always possible to do once a week chemotherapy in those pets even if they do have the desire and the um backing it's not always feasible you're spot on to raise this is that when we're discussing management of lymphoma we are trying to bring all these other elements in of course there's also the element of the pet how, how can the pet um adapt to chemotherapy. Are they going to adapt to weekly chemotherapy or are they going to be happier doing something a little bit more hands-off? So potentially you're very aggressive patients, you're very, very anxious patients who are not responding to um habitualization or not responding to anxiolytic medications, then having a protocol that is much less intense and an oral protocol can be a real lifesaver in in those sets of circumstances. Yeah. So you're right, that's also when I'm using Lomasteen is when when we want that hands-off approach. <laughs>
1: So let's say you see a patient in with just generalized lymphadenopathy, aspirated, comes back as lymphoma, maybe you do some immunocytochemistry or whatever, and it comes back as a T cell. Then I guess you have that discussion with the owners where you go through a a multi-drug protocol or a single agent, which you've just told about the, the pros and cons of, or just steroids alone. So let's say the owner doesn't want to go down the route of multi-drug protocol for whatever reason, but wants to do just steroids, how, how would you go about it? What kind of, what would you do?
2: Options for that. So per conversation about the options that they have available to them, I mean, lomistine is one of those options and it's a great option because it's oral. We have to say at this point that the evidence supporting using lomistine as a first line for lymphoma is that it can give remission, but it's not usually a very durable remission. Having said that, a colleague of mine that I worked with years ago had a couple of exceptional success stories using Lomestine alone as a first-line treatment. I say alone in combination with steroids, in combination with prednisolone. They had some exceptional success stories in two cases that that went away and went into remission and lived for a very long time, lived over 12 months with Lomestine alone alongside steroids. The literature actually would say that the response rate is not usually that durable with lomestine and prednisolone alone. So I would explain that to the owners Mm. and say it's certainly an option. The other option I would talk about quite often would be perhaps doxorubicin alone. But then again, that isn't an infusion. It's given as an injectable agent and that just isn't suitable for some patients. There Mm. are other options without going into intricacies. We now have rabacfosidine for our b-cell lymphomas so there are other options but low just fits that niche where you've got that oral agent that can be given at a at an interval which is not very intense it's given every three weeks usually so
1: jenny you you mentioned um earlier on that for epithelio, epitheliotrophic t-cell lymphoma is you, your first line so why is that or can you can you tell us a little bit about that
2: I think the first thing probably to say about that subset of lymphomas is they are traditionally very difficult to treat. They are usually quite challenging to achieve remission in these patients with a disseminated T-cell epithelial trophic lymphoma and response rates and duration of responses can be disappointing. But certainly lomustine in my mind, is one of the single best agents we have against this disease. And usually we see relatively high response rates, usually response rates that can be upwards of 50%, complete remission rates tend to be around about a third of patients will go into complete remission using lomastine alongside steroids sometimes alongside um asparaginase as well for this subset of patients but lomastine has been my drug treatment of choice for quite a while for this subset of t-cell epithelial lymphomas so and i have a patient actually just at the moment a golden retriever as many of them are who it has achieved a complete remission and the owners are delighted now I guess to caveat there with the fact that often the duration of response is not very long. We know that usually most of these patients don't get longer than six months but the improvement in clinical signs and the improvement in quality of life can be quite astounding using lomustine the, in these subset of patients. Okay.
1: And is there any other kind of types or scenarios where you reach for lomustine, with regards to lymphoma in particular as a, as a first drug or is it mostly just for the
2: I think um, I think the epitheliotrophic, I think if there's owner reasons yeah. as we discussed that that or owner or patient reasons that may dictate it would be a good choice I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would include it for our T-cell phenotypes in our other multi-drug protocols. Mm-hmm. It's often incuse, uh, included in our rescue protocols that we touched on. It's usually a feature of rescue protocols. There's not usually cross-resistance with other alkylating agents with lomastine, so it's a good choice to add into rescue protocols. I think in humans, there's been some cross-resistance with carmustine, but that's not a drug that we commonly use. Rescue protocol, really good place for lomastine. I think I've already mentioned, but I've been using it in feline rescue protocols as well um i guess actually cats are a little bit different with lomustine. they um sometimes have some problems from prolonged myelosuppression so we might move on to in a second talking about i guess what the side effects and adverse events might be related to lomustine. Mm. but cats we can use lomustine in cats for lymphoma and can be a really useful choice there as well simply because some cats are not amenable to injectable um, chemotherapy regimes cats are more difficult i find to um, habitualise and get used to coming for chemotherapy. Dogs are quite reward orientated. Cats aren't always that way. So they can be trickier chemotherapy patients. I'm sure you're aware of this and can need a slightly different approach. And oral chemotherapy can be quite useful for some cats. So lomostine can form a, form a good place in, in managing feline okay. lymphoma.
1: Moving on from lymphoma for a few minutes, you mentioned another type of cancer that you'll reach for lomostine is histiocytic sarcoma. So are we talking the flat coat or the Bernese that's had an amputation for a a periarticular tumour or what are you, what kind of cases are you using it in?
2: I have been using it as an adjunct to surgery or radiotherapy for sure. So those, as you say, those flat coats, those Bernese Mountain Dogs, those Rottweilers that we see with um, periarticular. So I've been using it in that setting, but I've also been Trying it for the disseminated histiocytic sarcomas, but sadly those dogs do have a pretty grave prognosis. Hmm. But there have been patients that I've been trying to prolong um, quality of life using lomustine in that setting. But certainly, it's yes, it's my drug of choice for using as a adjunct to surgery or other local management in that subset of patients or our splenic yeah. histiocytic sarcomas as
1: well. I have seen a few like localized splenic histiocytic sarcomas that I've followed up with lomustine, and they've done reasonably well. I can certainly think of two or three that I've had 14 months with localised spleen followed with lamustine. So do you think in, let's say going back to the the periarticular histiocytic sarcoma, do you think all of those dogs should be followed up post-surgery with some kind of adjuvant treatment or, or how do you approach those cases?
2: I guess what I'm doing is I'm doing my staging and I'm looking at my pathology reports to make a decision I think a lot of those dogs probably do benefit from some adjuncts but I suppose those decisions are um, are possibly better made in light of the staging Mm. results in light of whether we've got lymph node involvement in light of whether we what we've got histopathologically because there are some of those dogs historically who have done quite well with Mm. surgery alone um, particularly some of the flat coat papers, before we utilise chemotherapy, there were some reasonably good outs with radical surgery for flat coats, with periarticular, particularly, and um, for um, cystic sarcoma. So I base those decisions in all honesty on pulling together all of the information, but a lot of the dogs do end up getting adjunct lomestine that I'm managing, but I'm taking all of that evidence together, if yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely.
1: So what about mast cell disease then?
2: Yeah I was thinking about this today actually as well again in light of coming and chatting to you and I think about when I use Lomastine for mast cell disease and actually it's not usually my first choice but a lot of managing managing mast cell tumours with chemotherapy is probably down to personal choice so and because the evidence is pretty much um there's lots of chemotherapy papers in mast cell tumours out there but it's hard sometimes the papers can be a little what's the word juxtaposed they can say similar things or slightly different things so um the choices, I guess we should say, when you've got a mast cell tumour, we're often using chemotherapy when we're dealing with tumours that are high stage or high grade, typically high grade mast cell tumours. We will want some type of systemic adjunct. And in those cases, I tend to do vinblastine and prednisolone as a first line. But then if that fails, I will reach for lomastine. There's a lovely review actually. I was looking at it today. I've had lots of mast cell tumour cases lately. So um it's so reading the review that's in JSAP. There's a really good summary of management of mast cell tumours, cutaneous and subcutaneous, I think published 2021, if I'm quite. And that really summarises all of the chemotherapy literature that's out there. And yeah, there certainly are some papers using lomustine as a first line. Others using it after vinblastin, pred, but but my preference has been to go vinblastin, pred first and then go lomustine. But again, it ties into those conversations earlier. That might be a preference, but if somebody's coming from um, a long distance, they're not going to be able to attend always for weekly um weekly protocols. So lomustine might be used as a first line in certain sets of circumstances as well.
1: Yeah, the same. I was going to say I've actually never um used lomustine for for mast cell disease. And I, I was the same as you, it would be vinblastine and pred. But I guess it's probably like you said, it, it's probably a um, circumstantial thing. And I can, I think we've probably been lucky in the cases where I've followed up with adjuvant chemo for mast cell tumors. The owners haven't had a problem coming in weekly or then every second week for vinblastine. But I, I didn't think about actually that if we do have an owner that that can't make it to the clinic weekly or every second week abusing lamustine in that scenario as an adjuvant treatment yep
2: it's just, it's true. And I think a lot of it as specialists are probably the trained. We have to be careful to have really? open minds because of new literature coming out once you finish your residency. But certainly the way I was trained is that we use finblast and pred, first of all. So we do have to be careful that we don't become stuck in a rut with what we recommend, of course. But I'm still doing that for muscle tumours and like not usually had a problem. And also I've had some pretty good outcomes. I have, however, used lomestine in quite a lot of muscle tumours as well, okay. because um, certainly With a high caseload, we've seen these mast cell tumours where you have multiple um, satellite lesions around a mast cell tumour that have come back and are really aggressive. I remember a dog in its neck that had several lesions that were not amenable to further surgery. And we were using Vimblastin-Pred. We had a failed response with that. We tried Lomastine. That was a highly aggressive tumour. And we tried the tyrosine kinase inhibitors as well. And we bought ourselves time, but we didn't buy ourselves a cure in that case, And we also had a linguinal tongue cell tumour in a dog as well that we tried various things with. So um, it's not that I haven't used it and I don't have experience and I think it's got a place. It's just that at the moment it's not my first line. But things might change as people
1: perform more. That makes sense. Well, going back to using Lamostine for lymphoma, what kind of doses and and stuff do you use and frequencies and for how long? It's
2: pretty straightforward. Typically in dogs, we use 50 to 70 mg per metre squared, and normally going in about 60. And in cats, it's a bit lower than that. So normally the maximum dose I'll give to a cat is 6 mg squared. Bear in mind that is mg per metre squared, and it's calculated on body surface area and not mg per kg. It used to be actually when I first started using Lomastine that the dose range went up to 90 mm. mg per metre dogs but we tend not to do that anymore. That's usually associated with greater levels of toxicity. So actually, the tend to go up to a maximum of 70. I have given mm-hmm. 80 m 2 before, away with that. What we'll tend to do where I'm working currently is we'll start with a lower dose and then we'll check a nadir, check what the lowest levels is, the lowest level of neutrophils, and then we can escalate our dose if if, um, if deemed safe. And that's quite a nice approach. Typically for the nadir, we're looking at about seven days after administration that we'll check that, but... Can be a little bit variable with lomestine, so sometimes a little bit longer than that. But we'll get these dogs typically at seven days, and cats back at seven days as well. But in cats, the myelosuppression can be quite prolonged, and again, the quite unpredictable. And it is written um, about cats that will have myelosuppression for many weeks, and that can be one of the issues with giving lomestine to cats. It can be that. Didn't you know, so realize before we give chemotherapy, we check our blood cell levels, we check our neutrophil counts to make sure it's safe to go ahead. And often in cats, you're checking that, and you're finding that they're persistently neutropenic sometimes um, with lomestine. But I've got a little cat at the moment I'm seeing, Morrow, and he's actually coping really well and is to in every two weeks as part of a rescue protocol. So um, it is highly variable animal to animal, isn't it? But that's the gist of the, the doses that, that I'm tending and to. And
1: do you do the whole dose escalation thing? If you start low and then if their nadir is fine and they're clinically well, will you escalate?
2: Yeah, yeah, I will. it's not just judged, obviously, on the mm. nadir, it's judged on what the owner is telling me about their demeanour and their um, quality of life at home. It's also judged on um, something that probably it's a good timely time to bring this in is um, the side mm. effects of lomestine. So we've just talked there about how lomestine can affect blood cell levels. And of course, that is, um, that is always usually with chemotherapeutics that we can get suppression. Lomestine can cause GI toxicity. So some dogs will have anorexia or vomiting. But lomestine can also affect the liver. So hepatotoxicity is reported. And sometimes that can be one of our dose-limiting toxicities. So it might be that actually the dog collation regarding its neutrophil counts, its, its white blood cells, but it might be that its liver can't mm. tolerate that. Hepatotoxicity is a drug-specific side effect to lomestine and something that we keep a really close eye on during...
1: For their first? administration so i'm not convinced yeah. it's just a a repeat or a, a dose related thing
2: yeah it is meant to be cumulative mm. there's a high risk as you go through um the protocol and typically most dogs will tolerate four to six doses but it's um it, it is meant to be cumulative mm. with the dose that's given but i agree there have been some dogs that have not tolerated it well regarding liver side effects i also wonder if they have some underlying yeah. hepatotoxicities independent liver disease affects it. Um sometimes their cancer might be affecting their liver of course as well if it's mast cell or if it's lymphoma. I think as well So I'm gonna say I was just thinking about oh that was the other thing I was going to say regarding the liver is how difficult it can be sometimes in our mast cell tumor dogs and our lymphoma dogs to really tease out whether it's the lomicene or the mm-hmm. steroids because these dogs are often on steroids as well. So I will usually do I don't think there's an exact science to this but I will do my ALT activity levels and my alkaline phosphatase together. It's the ALT really that we're looking at for hepatotoxicity and looking at how well the liver's coping with its lomacine. But I use the alkaline phosphatase to see how much I think I'm seeing a secondary steroid hepatopathy. Mm. And I have a little bit of a judgment call because I would expect with steroid administration that my ALT activity will go up slightly, but it will be a small yeah. magnitude that ALKP will go up to a greater magnitude And so I don't do the same, but I just do a little bit of judgment there as to whether I think the steroids are causing the increase or whether it's because if my ALT is shooting up, then I'm convinced it's the Lomastine and I will stop. But there is that element of that can be a bit tricky when you've got these round cell tumors that are on Lomastine and steroids at the same time. Yeah, a little bit of judgment. I think with those cases as well, worth mentioning that we do have some things in our armory to try and um, reduce the risk of hepatotoxicity, And I do use um, Denamarin for all of these cases. So some form of S-adenosylmethionine and milk thistle is beneficial actually speaking to different oncologists people do different things i do give them the full 21 of support as long as they can medicate the pet and as long as it's affordable but other people will give just seven days after yeah. treatment and then stop for a while so but i at the moment i'm giving the full 21 days i don't know if that's something to yeah
1: I, I would have them on it for their whole protocol basically and um, but it's interesting yeah. that some people are doing it just for the first seven days
2: Last week yeah there's some literature where if you look in the papers that are coming out that will be part of the protocol it was liver support was given for some days after treatment or so yeah Yeah. it is out there i don't think we have any evidence to say what's better we don't have anybody who's done a prospective study to say let's give it for seven days let's give it for Mm. 14 days let's give it for 21 days To my knowledge anyway i haven't looked for that um recently but i don't think we have the evidence just yet so i err on the side of caution and, and given i've got but she got a little Westy on Lomustine at the for a um, rectal sure. lymphoma, which is unusual because rectal lymphoma normally has a good prognosis. But this dog failed huh. to chop, so I went to a Lomustine based rescue. She's tolerated so it's no problem at all, and I have liver okay. support medications. Who's to know how it would have done without those? But she's she's doing very well at the moment. Which, which single is a single
1: agent kind of lean like rescue. Yeah.
2: Combined with. Pre- Alone mm-hmm. and combined with L-asparaginase as well. So basically uh, what we call an ALP yep. rescue protocol for that
1: okay. dog. I'm going to ask you a, a controversial question. I know obviously the, the study, I think it's only one, that looked at s methionine and milk thistle, looked specifically at, at denamarin. Do you think we should be using only Denimarin or do you think it's reasonable for people to use brands of liver support medications have in theory the same ingredients?
2: I think if they have the same ingredients, I think that's reasonable. I suspect... It is a controversial area, because I suspect if you were to talk to the people who make these supplements, they will say that their product has different characteristics, even if the box reads the same. I th- I've come across that when I've been talking to factories yeah. of these. And these are nutraceuticals, so they're not regulated in the same way as yeah. my understanding as pharmaceutical yeah. drugs. Um, so perhaps if you were talking to a different person, they would say, well, no, there's something unique in our product, the way we make it, the active ingredients might be different. Some would say that the study was done with Denimarin so therefore use Denimarin but I think if you've got the same ingredients I think you should theoretically have a benefit yeah. and the, the exact brand should be problematic but you're right it's a controversial area and we don't because of the way that the nutraceuticals are made we don't know if that's yeah. the that formulation that's beneficial yeah. or not um, some newer papers looking at things like different preparations i'd need to look at that but i think i think for the time being i tend to use the the product that was in that original yeah. paper because the result so was so nice to show that the reduction in hepatotoxicity. so yeah, yeah i do tend to do that but that is that is a tricky question and i think the difficulty as well is if then you're reaching for another product which perhaps doesn't have milk thistle in or we don't know which element is giving yeah. us the exact protective effects so if you're going to go for a different um, brand, then you need to make sure that the product is identical. Active ingredients are identical, I guess.
1: Yeah, my, my thoughts were the same. Kind of not really based on anything, but I think because it was Denimaran that was used, I, I'm just I would feel more comfortable. I think using the the product that was described, even if in theory they have the same, different brands have the same the same composition, basically.
2: The one thing I realised that I haven't touched upon that might be mentioning is that side effects-wise, we talked about hepatotoxicity. we talked about myelosuppression, sometimes lomastine can cause an independent decrease in platelets as well. So if vets are using lomastine out there, lots of times in-house analysers don't don't always accurately measure platelets. So just make sure in these pets that you are doing blood smears and you're making sure that they have enough platelets when they're on treatment. Because if you have got a drug-induced thrombocytopenia, they show that these pets don't often bleed because of that but that would be a reason obviously for discontinuing the drugs thinking about all the side effects that we talked about we hadn't specifically mentioned that so it's probably good to touch on that you do need to keep a really close eye on platelet levels as well but i think aside from that we've covered lots haven't we given lots of information
1: yeah so i think that's that's been super helpful jenny it's been a great run through on you know how you how you monitor lamostine side effects to look out for and what kind of cases you think it's appropriate to use in so thank you very much for for your time this evening
0: these podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses if you're listening as a pet owner then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon